So we come to Job chapter 40, verses 6 through the end of that chapter, verse 24. God's holy and inspired word from the Old Testament, Job chapter 40, verses 6 through 24. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Job 40, beginning in verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder your voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look for everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then... I Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins. His power is in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees Cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He's confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So one of our favorite pastimes is comparison. We judge, we joke, and we brag by comparing one thing to another. He is as strong as an ox. The kid was quiet as a mouse. Dinner was as tasty as gravel mixed with pig slop. Yeah, we think by comparison. It's the bread and butter of marketing and promotion. Comparison is the language of love and hostility. And yet, as useful as comparison is, it does have some pitfalls. It's, which is the apple and orange blunder when we compare two things that don't match. She speaks like a cucumber. The house is agile as a deer. But these don't work. For what does a cucumber have to do with speaking? And houses are not agile. Thus, comparisons have to be made well, but a bad one can get us into trouble. And yet it is precisely at this point that Job has misstepped, for he has compared two things that ought not to be equated. And so the Lord furthers his correction of Job with a more fitting 
and more illuminating comparison. So it's round two. Job has begged and protested for a meeting with God, and so Lord is not going to give him a short shrift. The whirlwind kicks dust up again, and Yahweh speaks to Job. Dress for action like a man, gird up your loins, I will question you, and you answer me. Now, just as back in chapter 38, the Lord summons Job into the wrestling ring. Job challenged, wanted to challenge to the Lord, challenge the Lord, so let them tangle. And yet this is not a physical contest, but it is one of wits. Job shot questions at God, and so he will return the favor. Though for the Lord to put Job through a second round makes us curious. For Job already tapped out. He raised the white flag of surrender as one who is small and insignificant. He slapped his hand on his mouth to concede his ignorance and folly. Well, if Job submitted in the fear of the Lord, why put him through the ringer again? Well, clearly the Lord has more to teach Job. His yielding in silence was good, but it needs to go further. So what is this second lesson? Well, in the first round, God rebuked Job for darkening his counsel. In ignorance, Job obscured the providential and governing plan and design of God. Job thought he knew how God ran the world, and Job submitted a two-star review. He had the mysteries of the Lord all figured out, and he wasn't happy. Thus the Lord gave Job a tour around his grand and marvelous world, from the beginning of creation to reign in the desert, from the raven to the wild ox. God's governance was displayed by caring, by as caring and abundant, as beautiful and sublime. Yes, the Lord's wide world was much more mysterious and impressive than Job ever imagined. In this way, the Lord shook Job out of his me-focused narcissism by the wonders of God's awesome care of creation. So this is the lesson of the first round, but how about this second go? Well, the topic does change. The Lord does not merely repeat himself for emphasis, but he takes up a different, different issue. Thus, verse 8, will you put me in the wrong... Or more literally, will you break my justice? Yes, Yahweh rebukes Job for breaking his justice. Hence, the topic shifts from God's providential design to more narrowly, his justice. And yet, what does this mean to break or nullify his justice? Well, as you know, the Lord's justice has been a regular subject of the debate between the friends. Though this word for justice can mean either two things. One, a court case, like a forensic trial, or two, moral justice as a virtue. So which one is intended? Well, Job has consistently employed this word for the court case he won with God. He complained that God would not give him his day in court. He protested that the Lord had shut the courthouse to the disputes of Job. Thus, Job never quite charged God for being morally unjust. 
Instead, he grumbled that the Lord wouldn't open up his tribunal for him. And this is an important distinction, for to charge God as being unjust, absolutely, this can be bla- this is blasphemous. But to grumble and question why the Lord won't hear your plea, this is legitimate biblical lament. Yet where Job kept to this pious distinction throughout all his speeches, nevertheless, in his closing argument, he pushed further. In chapter 29, Job asserted that justice was his cloak, that his moral justice and righteousness was his garment, part of the fabric of his identity and virtue. Then, in chapter 31, Job bragged that he did not deny justice to his servants when they complained. As a lord himself, Job never shut his court to the disputes of his servants. And with this, Job set up a comparison. He likened himself to God. Like God, he wears moral justice. But better than God, Job never shut his court to his servants. Yes, Job postured himself as doing better than the Lord. He's just. And his tribunal does not close its doors, unlike God who locked his courthouse to Job. Thus, note, the Lord rebukes, will you annul my justice? Will you condemn me to justify yourself? Indeed, Job was so adamant about proving his righteousness, so dogmatic about his uprightness, that he ended up putting God down. And this is not proper comparison. To defend your integrity is good. To promote your own uprightness can be legit. But to do this at the expense of others crosses a line. To say, look how great I am because everybody else is terrible, this is not wise, charitable, or accurate. And even more so when that other person is God. Therefore, to carve his righteousness in stone, Job compared himself with God and boasted that he did it better. God is just, but Job a little bit more so, for he would never deny a lowly servant his day in court. And such is the topic of this second round. Thus, the Lord rebukes Job for tarnishing his justice and promoting his own righteousness By faulting God. In short, God asserts that Job has made an inappropriate comparison. And to drive home how serious is this faux pas, the Lord lets it play out. You want to compare yourself with me? You want to play the game of who's better? Okay, let's go. Do you have an arm like God? Does your voice thunder like the Lord's? Now, Yahweh's arm is his omnipotent might, by which he does all things. His thundering voice is the power of his word, where God utters the syllables and it is done. And paired up, voice and arm exhibit God's unconquerable will. What the Lord says, he does. What he desires, he always performs. Now, for us... We can say all sorts of things. We can wish and shout orders, 
But this does not mean that we can make it happen. You can tell the weeds in your garden to just be gone, but they're not going to listen. We can wish our loved one back from the dead, but our words are useless against death. Not so the Lord, though. If he tells a cedar tree to jump into the sea, it will uproot itself and take the plunge. To even think that Job's bicep is as swole as Yahweh's is absurdity. But there are times, but there are times when pondering the ludicrous is exactly what is needed. And so the Lord goes on. Adorn yourself in pride and dignity, but deck yourself in splendor and majesty. You want to be like God? Well, then dress yourself in the same glories and perfections. You want to be a big boy, Job? Put on the armor of a grown man. Now, these attributes of splendor and dignity encompass the Lord's royal authority and mastery, his judicial greatness and righteousness. Yet such attributes are particularly hazardous when it comes to a comparison. Can you measure human splendor with that of God's? Well, in the Psalms, the Lord does bestow on the Davidic king glory and splendor. And so the Lord can share some of these beauties with us humans. And yet the word here for majesty means literally pride. And when pride is attributed to God, it is his proper doxology and dignity. But when pride is applied to humans, it condemns gross hubris. This call to adorn himself with pride is actually an exhortation to blasphemy and arrogance. Of course, God, commanding something that's unlawful and immoral, only exposes the absurdity of the notion. It smells of sarcasm and irony. Job can't do this, and if he tried, it would be sacrilegious hubris. And so to compare Job's, and so it is, to compare Job's justice with that of God's. But to further tease this out, the Lord continues his challenge of Job. He says, pour out your anger. Look at the proud ones and abase them. Note the arrogant people and humble them. You trample them down and bury them in the dust. Now here, the Lord focuses on one distinct aspect of justice and governance. Now God's justice deals with every type of wickedness and rebellion. Yet one key act of justice is to humble the arrogant and proud. And so the Lord puts justice, one task of justice to Job. Go ahead, Job. You think you can do better than me? Well, then bring low those who exalt themselves. With the right measurement and appropriate force, Job must abase the arrogant down to the dust. And dust has the connotation of death. Dust is part of our frame as humans. Thus, those people who exalt themselves like God need a good dose of the dust. The reminder that we are mere mortals. And the Lord even offers Job a reward if he's able to humble the arrogant. If he can do this, the Lord says, I will praise you. The Lord will laud Job for his victorious right hand. If Job can win this victory with his own arm, then the Lord will honor him with the appropriate doxologies. 
Of course, there is chiding in the Lord's tone here. Yahweh singing the praises of Job? Job gaining triumph by his own wits and power? Such things are not possible. To utter such silliness almost feels like humor. Very funny, Lord. And yet this comedy reveals the absurdity of Job's comparison with God. That his justice is better than the Lord's is ridiculous. Yet there's also irony here. Note that God challenges Job to humble those who arrogate themselves to divine honors. The proud deserve the dust. But isn't this precisely what Job is doing? His justice shines brighter than God's? Job's righteousness scored higher than Yahweh's? This is not an innocent mistake, but it's an arrogant comparison. And if Job has dawned on pride then he deserves dust too. Fear enters us. Does this mean that God is about to crush Job in the dust? Will he trample him to death? If the crime fits, then so does the punishment. A harsh judgment has opened up for Job. Will God execute it or not? Will the Lord's guillotine drop? And yet, just as we expect severity from the Lord, the Lord leads us back outside. He takes us on another nature walk through his beautifully mysterious world. And this time, the Lord stops at one exhibit to meditate more deeply. As he says to Job, Behold, behemoth. Look, Job, Do not take your eyes off of behemoth. Consider all that behemoth is, just how wonderful is this creature. In God's grand and zany zoo, the Lord focuses our vision on behemoth. And yet, what are we looking at? What is this beast that goes by the name of behemoth? Well, the name behemoth is the majestic form of the the word for animal or beast, which means it is large and massive. It's the beast of all beasts. Next, behemoth was created just like Job. So behemoth is a real animal and not some fantastic beast of legends. It also eats grass like a cow. Thus, most likely, behemoth is the hippopotamus. Yes, behemoth is a hippo. Now, some of the description here does seem a bit exaggerated. There might be a few mythological features attributed here. Behemoth may even be a species of hippo that no longer exists. And yet, nevertheless, it's best to understand behemoth as a standard old hippo. Though in the exotic zoo of the Lord, there's nothing standard about the hippo. Like the ostrich and the elephant, hippos are more on the wacky and avant-garde side of animals. In the water, all you can see is their eyes, nose, and ears. On land, the hippo looks like a bloated meat balloon. They spend most of their time in the water, but they technically cannot swim. They eat grass like a cow, and yet they have fangs like a saber-toothed tiger. Upside down, but 
like a tiger. Though the first thing that may amazes us about this alien-looking animal is its size and strength. A male hippo can weigh over 4,000 pounds, which is heavier than some pickup trucks. As God marvels, he goes on, he says, its belly muscles are powerful. Power resides in its loins. The hippo has bones like bronze tombs, and its femurs are bars of iron. Now, this accurately describes the super-dense bones of the hippo. Now, next it says that its tail is like a cedar tree, which we don't quite understand. This is likely poetic exaggeration. Nevertheless, no matter, the overwhelming size and strength of the hippo are awe-inspiring. Next, God praises Behemoth as the first of his works, fashioned before humans. Such priority in creation grants the hippo dignity and honor. The first of God's works? This is how wisdom is praised in Proverbs 8. And so Behemoth is here. This is high praise. So also, only the creator can bring a sword to the hippo. The mountains bring the hippo produce, and all the animals play around Behemoth. This pictures Behemoth as having no real natural predators. Now, to bring produce, this is a metaphor of vassals bringing tribute to a lord. And God's sword alone can kill the hippo? But other than this, no animal really preys upon the hippo. Now, sure, a lion and a crocodile can kill a baby hippo, Yet adult hippos have known, been known to kill lions and chop crocodiles to death. They chase off rhinos and even cape buffaloes. Even today, it's estimated that hippos kill around 500 people annually around the world. Think about this. A herbivore killing a lion. What an uncanny wonder. Though... When hippos are not threatened, they're rather placid and docile. They bob peacefully in the water for two-thirds of the day. Thus, the other animals play and dance around the hippo. The peace of the hippo is the playground for gazelles and hyenas. Birds will flutter around their ears, and fish tickle their bellies under the water. Indeed, for behemoth... uh, For Behemoth wastes most of its days blazing around in the marsh. Shaded by the lotus, surrounded by willows, the hippo takes its siesta in the river. Without a care in the world, Behemoth sunbathes in the swamp like he's a wealthy retiree. Fat and happy epitomizes the hippo. In fact, so careless and unworthy, unworried is Behemoth that when the river floods and surges, it cares not. As you know, a flooding river is one of nature's great dangers. Floods will sweep us away like a toothpick. A rushing torrent strips the bank of vegetation. It makes other animals run for cover, but not Behemoth. The deluge comes and it cares not. Rather, the hippo merely opens his mouth for a bigger drink. 
A flash flood is like turning on the jets of a hot tub for the hippo. Ooh, that feels good. Massive and mighty, placid and peaceful is the great hippo. And so it's aptly named Behemoth. And with this ancient lord of beasts before Job, God makes his application. So, Job, can you seize the hippo by the eye? Can you snare Behemoth in the nose? The Lord challenges Job to hunt and subdue the colossal behemoth. Now, the hunting method here is actually realistic. We know that hippos were hunted by or hunted for sport by the pharaohs of Egypt. In fact, we have pictures, hieroglyphics, of Pharaoh and a small army catching hippos with hooks in the nose. Thus, the point here is not that humans cannot kill a hippo. Rather, it's about Job himself and how it is hunted. That is, by himself, can a Job bring a hippo down? Well, no way. Also, humans cannot take a hippo head-on in hand-to-hand combat. Humans have to use sophisticated traps with a herd of different people. Hence, Job is no match for the hippo. He can't subdue this great beast. He's unable to humble the proud behemoth, which then brings us full circle. Remember Job compared his justice with God. He promoted his righteousness by poking faults at God. And so the Lord said, okay, bring it on. You want to compare? You want to compete? Then adorn yourself and humble the proud. And the Lord hands Job an example of a proud beast for Job to subdue. Thus, Behemoth is presented as one of the Lord's champions. The hippo is the hero of God's creation, proud and mighty. If Job can humble like God, then let him triumph over Behemoth. Come on, Job. Give the hippo a good trouncing. And of course, Job cannot. A single man before a hippo is like a spider before a cat. The blows of Job will bounce off behemoth. Job cannot scare the hippo off. And in a sprint, hippos can outrun a human. And if the hippo attacks, Job will be trampled into the dust. Behemoth can pop Job in his mouth like a watermelon. In the boxing ring between Behemoth and Job, it is no contest. Job has to raise the white flag before the fight even begins. And if this is true of the hippo, then how much more of God himself? If Job cannot subdue God's hero, he has no chance against the Almighty. Thus, by this nature video on the hippo, a most wonderful and essential truth is published. Namely, that there's no one like God. The Lord is incomparable. He is unmatched and far above all things created. Job may be created in the image of God, but the image is a feeble shadow compared to the real glory of Yahweh. In short, then, God is impressing upon Job and us that he is the transcendent creator and all-powerful judge, and we are weak creatures. We are imperfect critics.
if we can't match the hippo, then it is impossible for us to measure up to the Lord. Therefore, the Lord is rightly humbling the pride of Job. Job considered his righteousness to be of divine quality. He thought he held court better than God. Job put God in the dock to put his to promote his own piety. And for such arrogance, Job needs to be put in his place, which is what the Lord does here. One of the essential ingredients in the fear of the Lord is humility. It is a submissive posture that we are the creature, mortal and sinful, and that God is the creator, infinite and holy. Well, Job had lost sight of this. And so the Lord imposes this reminder upon him. And what Job needed here is a regular check that we require as well. For as you know, we we all have an ego. And our egos always tends towards conceit and arrogance. Pride is a weakness we all suffer from. Our hearts are factories that produce idols, and all idols at the end of the day serve self-deification. In arrogance, our comparison with God is wrong and foolish. And this is particularly the case with justice. Think how often we look at providence and we think that we could be more just than God. Babies being killed in battle, infants born with cancer, surely we could do better than this. The world loves to lob such charges against the Lord and we can fall into the same temptations. But this should not be, for we are not God. We cannot compare ourselves with the Almighty. We do not have an arm like God. We can't even subdue hippos by ourselves, much less judge the proud correctly. Thus, a regular nutrient for our piety is to be humbled. We need ongoing reminders of God's glory and our creaturely lowliness. Our fear of the Lord requires ongoing reminders of respect, humility, and awe for God and his creation. Now, being humbled may not seem like a pleasant thing, but in reality, it is in such lowliness that we taste the gospel. This is actually seen here with Job himself. The Lord said that the arrogant deserved to be trampled into the dust of death, and we were afraid that God might crush Job, but instead... God mercifully took him out on a nature walk and showed him the hippo to humble him. Yahweh did not judge Job as he deserved, but he humbled Job to restore him to himself. The massive hippo was the means of grace to lead Job to humility and mercy. And it is similar with Christ and his gospel. As Jesus says several times throughout the Gospels, the first will be last and the last first. If you try to save your life, you will lose it, but if you lose it for Jesus, you will gain it. The arrogant are humbled, but the humble Jesus will exalt. Humble yourself before God, and he will exalt you. But God opposes the proud. 
For this call gets at the heart of our faith. As faith confesses that our best deeds are still rubbish. And faith trusts in Christ's righteousness alone. Faith bends the knee that we have no justice. But Christ fulfilled justice for our justification. Besides, this pattern of being humbled before being exalted, wasn't it modeled by Christ himself? Jesus is God. All power and majesty was the Son's, but he did not grasp such equality with God, but he became a man. Jesus took on the form of a servant, and he was humbled to the point of death upon the cross. This is one of the amazing wonders of the gospel, that God the Son humbled himself for us miserable sinners so that he could raise us up to be like him. Yes, Jesus loved us wicked rebels to save us and to resurrect us like he is. This is why when we are weak in Christ, we are strong. As we cast ourselves at his feet, he lifts us up to heaven. Thus praise the Lord for the humbling of our Savior. Thank the Father that he did not crush us as we deserve, but in grace Jesus humbled himself to save us to the uttermost. Thus may we always remain in the humility of faith. May we ever keep pride at bay, and then let us continually praise and trust the Lord, to trust him as the Almighty God, as our Holy Judge, and as our Blessed Savior, and to praise him as the creator of the hippo. Amen. Let's pray.